The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We turn now to the uh, subject of Christ in the wisdom literature, and uh, I would uh, refer you to the sheet you've just been following of uh, uh, Christ uh, in the Psalms, uh, you notice there part three. Uh, the, the first part, of course, was Christ in the history of redemption, and second, Christ in the Psalms, and the third part, Christ in the wisdom literature. This outline is an expanded version of the outline you got in the first day, and I, uh, I've given you both outlines um, because I thought there might be some value in having uh, the briefer as well as the expanded version. So this uh, part three, Christ in the Wisdom Literature. Uh, <clears throat> uh, first of all, uh, the, there is a wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Now that very category has been uh, uh, somewhat uh, uh, discussed. Uh, obviously, uh, in ancient Israel, uh, the question could be raised, uh, would they have uh, uh, thought of a wisdom literature? Would they have thought in those categories? Uh, in the book of Proverbs, it says that uh, wisdom builds her house and uh, she hews out her seven pillars. And there's my concept of a seven-pillared house. Uh, I doubt if it would have met the approval of the author of Proverbs, but uh, it's probably too Greek for that. But uh, anyway, there it is. Uh, at the house of wisdom. What is the place of wisdom uh, in the Old Testament? Well, uh, as uh, uh, Von Rod has said in his book on wisdom and literature, uh, the wisdom uh, of the Old Testament is the concept that man, through the knowledge of the Lord, must learn to become competent uh, with regard to the realities of life. That man, through the knowledge of the Lord, must learn to become competent with regard to the realities of life. Uh, it's been said that uh, while the the uh, book of uh, Psalms uh, gives us uh, the meditation of wisdom uh, in the temple for the worship of God. Uh, the book of Proverbs gives us meditation in the street, uh, in the marketplace. Uh, I think that's a, a good way to put it. A um, friend of uh, mine who uh, taught Old Testament for a time here at Westminster Seminary. He's now a pastor in the South, Tom Nicholas, uh, was giving a chapel talk here one time, and he said, uh, you know about uh, the strong meat of the word, and you know about the milk of the word, uh, but uh, today we're going to think about the hard candy of the word. And he was talking about the book of Proverbs, because he said the uh, Proverbs are like uh, all-day suckers. You know, you put one under your tongue and you sort of keep it there and you, you turn it over and uh, think about it uh, because uh, you have a kind of uh, uh, condensed uh, uh, understanding, uh, a, a brief statement of long experience. <laughs> you 
you know, I think it was Benchley, Robert Benchley, who said one time that uh, all the world is uh, divided into uh, two classes, uh, people who divide the world into two classes and those who don't. And uh, we, you get a lot of um, uh, little statements, you know, and you can rate them differently. Some little aphorisms are uh, just clever wisecracks, uh, but a proverb is... Uh, well, it expresses uh, wisdom in the sense of the, the fruit of reflection. And uh, as I've pointed out here in this little diagram, uh, meditation in uh, the law of the Lord has two streams in uh, the Bible. Uh, the stream of Psalms, uh, as uh, in Psalm 111, verse 2, which speaks of this meditation, and the stream of uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 9.10. Uh, so there is meditation, which is reflection for both praise and for wisdom. Now, wisdom is concerned with understanding relationships, uh, with understanding relationships uh, to the world. That is uh, uh, how we reflect on the world that God has made and our place in it. Uh, relationships to men and society, uh, both in terms of uh, uh, individual social relationships and in terms of uh, the relationships of nations uh, in uh, the world. The, uh, <coughs> the future of uh, uh, peoples uh, also uh, are a subject for wisdom. Uh, you see... The, those who were men of wisdom were, of course, fathers who instructed their sons. In the book of Proverbs, you have fathers addressing sons. There was also wisdom to be found in king's courts. Every king needed a counselor. Uh, you will remember uh, how uh, David had uh, a couple of counselors, among others. Uh, uh, one was Ahithophel, one was Hushai. And you will remember that when David's son, Absalom, rebelled against him and David was driven out of Jerusalem, uh, Hushai was loyal to David and left with him. And after uh, he had followed along with David for a time, uh, David said to him, Look, uh, uh, you're not uh, a military man and you're not uh, great help to me out here in the wilderness. Uh, but where you could really serve me would be back in Absalom's court. Uh, because the thing I need more than anything is somebody to overthrow the council of Ahithophel. Uh, because the great resource that uh, uh, Absalom gained when he captured Jerusalem, the greatest resource of all was Ahithophel. Because it was said of Ahithophel that to ask of him was like inquiring of the Lord. Uh, he was so wise that it was almost like a, a divine wisdom that he dispensed. And so remember, Hushai went back to overthrow the council of Ahithophel. And if you'll recall, um, uh, he had a rather difficult time, uh, to, difficult situation to face because Ahithophel was consulted first, and Ahithophel said, there's no doubt what's the wise thing to do, Absalom. You must strike at once. Don't give your father any opportunity to collect any men or to organize an army. 
Uh, he's a refugee right now. He's only got a little group of men with him. Uh, get together your troops and go right after him and kill him because you'll never be safe on your throne until your father is dead. So you've got to do it and act at once. And that was uh, absolutely uh, uh, the wise advice from the standpoint of Absalom's future. Uh, but uh, then Hushai was asked to give advice because uh, uh, he had passed uh, as one who had remained loyal to Absalom. Uh, apparently his little junket off with David was not known. And so uh, you will recall what Hushai said. That first of all, he appealed to the uh, um, fears of Absalom. He, he said, uh, you know, don't forget uh, the types that David has with him. You know who they are, those men whose names are on the, uh, uh, the roll of the mighty men, you know, uh, the, these, uh, uh, the, the, these were all in the, the base, I mean, the, the uh, Fighters Hall of Fame, you know, the, the, every one of them was a hero. Uh, they had put to flight uh, thousands of Philistines, and he says, you got that whole group there with David. And uh, they're pretty highly motivated. <laughs> and uh, if, uh, if you go after those types, and there's even a minor reverse, if they just beat you off, you know, and don't do any more than that, uh, then you know uh, what all the Jerusalem newspapers are going to be saying, and you know what all the commentators on the TV channels will say. Uh, they'll all say, you've had it, you know. <laughs> There's been a great defeat, and uh, uh, your whole cause will fall apart uh, by one comparatively minor defeat. Uh, and then, having appealed to his fear, he went on to appeal to his vanity. He said, uh, uh, you know, um, why take any risk? Uh, just wait a little while. Uh, you're the most popular man in all of Israel. Uh, everybody will troop to your cause. Uh, you'll be able to descend on David and his men like the dew on the mountains. Uh, you'll just be able to obliterate them completely. Uh, no problem if you just wait. And you know, Absalom was dumb enough uh, to take that advice that Hushai had uh, uh, presented. And, of course, you know the outcome, and so did Ahithophel. He knew the outcome even before it came out. Uh, you remember that what Ahithophel did was go home and uh, put a couple of codicils on his last will and testament uh, and then uh, ended his life because uh, he didn't have to wait to see what would happen. He was wise enough to know what would happen. Well, uh, that little, I remind you of that little story from the Old Testament. Uh, to uh, heighten in your consciousness <laughs> the importance of wise counselors. <laughs> and you remember how uh, um, uh, Absalom got in, into trouble by having uh, foolish counselors, and so did uh, 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 Solomon's uh, son Rehoboam get into trouble. Remember, it was the same thing. He uh, wouldn't listen to the older men. He listened to the younger men and... Uh, uh, he said he would be twice as oppressive as Solomon was in taxation and uh, etc. And well, uh, yes, wisdom is is uh, very important in kings' courts uh, to uh, deal with the problems of men in society. And then, uh, wisdom is uh, important most of all in, in relation to God. 
and I would remind you of uh, the great problem of the mystery of suffering uh, that wisdom continually deals with. Uh, this, of course, is the problem that's heightened in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the question is asked, uh, what is the meaning of life? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And you know, the author of Ecclesiastes talks about how the, the uh, rain comes down from heaven and flows down in the streams out to the sea and goes up in the clouds and comes back in and comes down and goes around and around and around and around and where does it ever get? <laughs> See, and uh, life is like that. Uh, uh, in, in wisdom, as I'll point out again in a moment, uh, in wisdom, timing is everything. Uh, a wise man knows not only what to do, but more particularly, he knows when to do it. Uh, see, that was the whole issue with Absalom, wasn't it? Everybody knew that Absalom would have to fight David's men, but the whole question was when. <laughs> And uh, if he had listened to Ahithophel, he would have done it at once and he would have won, uh, uh, humanly speaking at least. Uh, but if he uh, waited as he decided to do, uh, that of course was a disaster because uh, it wasn't just to Absalom that Israel rallied, it was to David that Israel rallied. And so time was against him, not for him. So timing means everything in wisdom and a wise man's going to tell you about timing. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the author uh, gives a skeptical look at this business of wisdom's timing uh, because he says, where does the timing of wisdom really get you in the end? Uh, you, uh, there's a time to plant, sure, but after a while there's a time to root up that which is planted. Uh, there's a time to build, yes, but there's a time to knock down what you built. Uh, there's a time to love, yes, but then there's a time to hate. Uh, there's a time to uh, make war. There's a time to make peace. So uh, any time is canceled by the opposite time. And so when you take a long-range view on it, uh, what's the use of it all? Uh, what's, the, what's the big deal? Uh, what's uh, the point of it all? If, you, if you're supposed to build, all right, it's just a little while, and you'll knock down that which was built. So what's the point of building in the first place? Uh, you see, that's the, uh, the skeptical questions that are asked in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, friends, uh, remember the setting of that in terms of redemptive history, okay? Uh, what's the setting? Well, it's the age of Solomon that's particularly the, the time of wisdom. And uh, why are we given uh, the emphasis on wisdom in the time of Solomon? Well, of course, because it's the first time that you have Israel completely established in their own land. The promises of God have been fulfilled. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, every man in his own property, enjoying his own inheritance. Uh, so for the first time, they can stop fighting to get in the land and sit down and enjoy it. <laughs> Uh, but now, you see, something interesting emerges. Uh, the question cannot help but arise, is this all there is? See? Uh, uh, every Israelite is sitting down, uh, looking into the sunset with a six-pack in his hand, and he's saying, uh, he's saying it never gets any better than this. And, uh, and, uh, and see, then, then, the, then the question is, is that really so? Uh, does it never get any better than this? 
And then when men stop to think about it, they think, well, maybe it doesn't get any better, but it sure gets a whole lot worse uh, because we're all going to die. And uh, when we die, what happens to it all? Uh, the wise man might have a lot of prestige when he's living, but uh, he doesn't have any prestige left when he's dead. Uh, and so where does it all get you? Do you see that? Do you see how that could not but emerge at that period in the history of Israel? You see, all the time uh, they're fighting and uh, uh, they're looking forward to the promises of God, to the great time when God would do everything he promised to do. But then when he's done it all, when Solomon spreads his hands and thanks God that he's kept all the promises that were made to Moses, you know, 1 Kings 8, uh, after he, he promises all that and it's all been fulfilled, then there can't help but be the question, is this all that there is? And, of course, that question has to be raised because it isn't all that there is. God has a greater blessing in store, necessarily a greater blessing. For, you see, they, we need to be delivered uh, not just from the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but we have to be delivered from death. We have to be delivered from uh, destruction, from disease, from uh, uh, the, the whole structure of the wages of sin. And so uh, this is the time uh, when uh, we have to consider what it is that God is doing in the world. And the wisdom literature faces up to these questions. Uh, the book of Job faces up to the problem of suffering. How can such great evils come? Every man's under his own vine and fig tree, but then uh, one man suddenly has disasters overcome him. And the question arises, uh, does he have these disasters because he's uh, the wickedest man in Israel? <laughs> Is Job uh, uh, the worst scoundrel around, and that's why he's uh, so signally judged? Of course, that's the theology of his comforters. And uh, Job keeps saying, it's not right, it's not right. Uh, I'm, uh, I've, I've uh, sought the Lord, I've sought to be obedient to him, I've prayed for my sons, I've done the things that the Lord's commanded. Uh, it can't be that uh, these judgments have singled me out because of the great degree of my wickedness. And so the whole problem of suffering, how can a righteous man suffer? See, that, that's a big issue. And, of course, uh, uh, connected uh, with this mystery of suffering uh, uh, and of uh, the vanity of life, uh, there's also the broader question of God's purpose with the nations. Uh, yes, Israel's been established in the world, but Israel's still a very tiny and relatively insignificant kingdom when compared to the mighty world powers. And uh, after the age of Solomon, more and more, Israel moves into this time of uh, world domination by the great uh, uh, powers, uh, uh, particularly, of course, uh, the, uh, uh, Assyria and Babylon. Uh, so how Egypt, too. Uh, but how does, how does Israel look at the world in which they're a little tiny enclave with all these great heathen nations? How do you understand that? And you see, that brings you into the point, at, up to the point, where Israel's taken off into captivity. And then, of course, that enormously heightens that problem. You see, 
peace and order, having your own land, that raises problems. Is this all there is? Uh, you get driven into captivity, and that raises worse problems. Uh, what's happened now? The bottom's dropped out. What, uh, uh, what about these great heathen nations? Is there going to be judgment for them? Or what, fu- what future is there? And you don't forget, Daniel, too, is a wise man. See, not just Solomon, but Daniel. Uh, with Solomon, you have uh, wisdom facing the problems of peace and prosperity. Uh, with Daniel, you have wisdom facing the problems of uh, heathen domination uh, over uh, Israel. And that's where you get, you see, all of this, I've been expanding on this mystery of suffering and how that comes to be a problem. And then the apocalyptic, uh, uh, Daniel's uh, vision of uh, uh, the great image, you know, with the uh, head of gold and the shoulders of silver and uh, the uh, thighs of brass and the legs of iron and the feet of clay. And then you remember how the stone cut without hands uh, strikes that image and uh, destroys it. And the kingdom of God is established uh, to become uh, a great kingdom that will fill all the earth. So uh, wisdom is concerned with the knowledge, uh, uh, with being related to the world, to men, and to God. And uh, especially, the last point that I didn't have room for on that uh, previous page, uh, it's concerned with knowing the Lord. Then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 2.5 For you see, the ultimate goal of wisdom is not simply uh, to know the world or to know men, uh, it's to know God. But it's to know God facing all these problems that are inherent to the structure of human life. Okay. Now, uh, are, are there some questions on that? Have I, have I heightened for you a little bit uh, your understanding of the importance of this wisdom literature and of its place in the history of redemption? Yes. Uh, Yeah, uh, assuming that Job was written before the Solomonic Age, uh, you know, the dating of Job is pretty hard to establish. But, uh, uh, of course, uh, at any rate, it's set, whenever it was written, it's set in a patriarchal period. And so it shows that from the very beginning, this problem was present. So that's right. I I take your comment as a way of indicating that it's not exclusively a problem of the Solomonic Age, but... Uh, it, does, it does come to a kind of uh, crisis or height in the Solomonic Age because, in a sense, until then, you're always looking forward to what God's going to do. And then when he's done it all, and then there's still death and still destruction, uh, that's when uh, a kind of disillusionment seems to set in. Uh, notice that that disillusionment, notice, however, how that is pointing us forward and preparing us for Jesus Christ. See, because the the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, is this all there is? And he's saying, it can't be. Now, the only answer he can give is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. But that doesn't solve the problems, you see. The, The problems still remain. And so the questions of Ecclesiastes are pointing us forward 
to that which is the answer to vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness. And that answer to the emptiness of emptiness is the fullness of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God's revelation in Christ. Um, you know, there was a time back in the 60s when uh, uh, that passage from Ecclesiastes was on uh, the walls of many, many dorm rooms. You know, there's a time to love and a time to hate, time to build and time so on. Uh, I think it was so popular mostly for the line, there's a time to love and a time to hate, because in the stormy development of adolescent emotions, uh, uh, th these uh, periods follow in fairly rapid succession of uh, loving somebody and then hating them, etc. So I, I think that uh, that may have accounted for the popularity of it. But uh, you see, I have heard preachers uh, solemnly exhort us in terms of that passage uh, that uh, uh, you know there's a time to build and we must build when it's time to build, especially when the church has a building fund. But uh, <laughs> But then they don't usually go on, there's a time to tear down that which was built, uh, unless it's a renovation project. Uh, but, uh, but, but you see, you're, you're, not, you're not going along and just saying, uh, here's a wonderful uh, truth. Uh, you've got to get the text in context and catch the, the, uh, the despair of it all, you see. The, the fact that everything gets relativized by its opposite. <laughs> what do you do with a life like that? And, of course, the answer has to be be, uh, uh, you're pointed forward to something more that God is going to do. This can't be all. Okay, now, the theology of wisdom in the Old Testament, and uh, first of all, the objective principle is uh, God's wisdom. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, 10. That's the great uh, golden text of the book of Proverbs. Uh, God is the possessor of all wisdom. Uh, he is, uh, Jesus Christ is the, the Logos. Uh, wisdom is God's attribute. Um, and all, as we're told in Psalms and Proverbs, uh, and also in that remarkable passage in Proverbs 8, uh, wisdom is God's companion. For there, in a poetic way, wisdom is personified and pictured as being with God from the very beginning. You know, in the book of Proverbs, uh, wisdom is personified mainly as a woman in contrast to the harlot. In contrast uh, to the harlot in the streets who's calling to young men to follow after her, the book of Proverbs says, here is Dame Wisdom, Lady Wisdom, and she comes in the street and she calls to young men to follow her. In, in other words, instead of following a path of uh, immorality and dissolution, uh, young men are called to follow the path of wisdom and hear the words of wisdom as wisdom calls. Well, in that same book of Proverbs, then, uh, Lady Wisdom is personified as uh, uh, having uh, been associated with God from the very beginning. Of course, it's a way of personifying the attribute of God, the attribute of wisdom, uh, which... Uh, was that by which God made the world. Uh, God also is the giver of all wisdom. He gives wisdom uh, in revelation as he uh, reveals himself in his works of creation and providence. He gives uh, wisdom in special revelation as he gives his word to men. Don't forget that Psalm 119 is also a wisdom psalm. And that uh, a great psalm of wisdom 
represents uh, reflective meditation on the Word of God. It's, uh, it follows uh, the pattern of um, uh, what uh, would be called the lotus form of meditation in the East, uh, like the petals of a lotus, you know, where you uh, start at a center, you start at a center and go out and come back and go out and come back and go out and come back. Uh, uh, that kind of uh, that kind of meditation uh, is what you have in Psalm 119. Uh, you start with some idea and you come back to the idea of the word of the Lord, and then you go out and say something else and back to the word of the Lord. Say something else back to the word of the Lord. Psalm 119 is not made for speed reading. It's made for reflection. It's to train you in uh, reflective insight. Uh, so uh, there, there is the, uh, the revelation of God in his word that we are to reflect upon and uh, think about. So the objective principle is God's revelation in his word and the way in which he illumines us in the understanding of it. The subjective principle of uh, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, of course, that's a remarkable uh, statement. Uh, There, I've just drawn a couple little diagrams to uh, contrast a good Ventilian view of the relation of uh, God and man with two circles there. Uh, The... uh, Uh, God is the creator, the Lord, the father. We are the creature, the servant, the child. And uh, we respond to God's revelation in our worship and fellowship with him and in our service of him. So uh, God uh, uh, speaks to us and we respond to him. Now, in the case of man, the rebel, you have all of that broken up. Man, the rebel, does not recognize the living God as his creator and father. And if he projects himself uh, uh, upward into some transcendental or transcendent realm, uh, then uh, that's idolatry. If he projects himself outward in speculation and thinks about being with a capital B, uh, again, uh, he has denied the personal and living God in uh, the vapors of abstract reasoning, uh, if he projects himself downward by uh, seizing power and oppression and exploitation, uh, he's still the rebel against God. Or if he turns within, uh, in mysticism, uh, he still has turned against the the revelation of God. So true wisdom uh, is wisdom which acknowledges God and uh, confesses that the fear of the Lord Uh, is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Notice that I would call your attention uh, to the fact that this means that all human reason is to be subordinate to the wisdom of God and that there are limitations to human reason. Uh, the, um, The problem in wisdom, human wisdom, is the fact that it's uh, thought to be uh, supreme. Uh, We imagine that uh, our minds can embrace all of reality. Uh, We think that we can ignore the revelation of God. But uh, the wisdom literature reminds us, Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, and lean not upon thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, 
and he will direct thy paths. It's a beautiful uh, expression of that. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. So the wisdom of God is the foundation of our thinking, and from the wisdom of God comes the fruitfulness of human thought. Because it is God's wisdom in which we find the integration of theory and practice. Uh, to find God's plan in the world and then to realize God's will in our own lives. <clears throat> Apart from the wisdom of God, there's no way that theory and practice can be brought together. Uh, there's no way, uh, philosophically, uh, that you can unite the ideal and the real. Uh, you know, Plato uh, had his realm of uh, the pure ideas and then uh, the material world and tried to get reality in terms of the participation of the material world uh, in, the, in the world of ideals. And, uh, Aristotle saw problems with that and tried to uh, develop a, a, a structure of uh, classifying the world as it was in a way that would relate the uh, theoretical with the practical more directly. Uh, but that didn't uh, hold either, and so the whole history of philosophy has struggled with this idea. And, and uh, Immanuel Kant tries his way to solve it, that uh, it's... Uh, uh, a matter of realizing that uh, uh, whatever the thing in itself is out there, we can only know it in the framework of our thought. So uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the pure forms of intuition, space and time, and the categories, uh, the uh, modal categories of, uh, um, uh, of quantity and quality and the like, uh, causality, uh, these are the structures of our thought. And so uh, uh, we can only know in terms of these structures. Well, a fine solution, magnificent solution, except uh, it really doesn't answer the questions. Uh, as it has been said, without the thing in itself, without the thing out there, uh, you can't get into Kant. And uh, with it, you can't stay in Kant. <laughs> uh, because if all you know is structured by these categories, uh, then as Ventil used to say, whatever my net can't catch isn't fish. Uh, but that, you know, that, that's, not, uh, that's not really solving the problems of reality. It's uh, acknowledging uh, uh, really at last a very subjective view uh, that, that can't be justified. Uh, and uh, since the time of Kant, uh, the problems go on, but uh, the answers are never found. Uh, why not? Uh, well, because they're really not findable. There's no way that you can relate the objective reality uh, to the conceptual understanding uh, from a finite base. And, uh, uh, of course, skeptical philosophers have often seen this and often emphasized this. Uh, when Kantian... Uh, uh, when Kantianism uh, went over into Hegelian idealism, uh, you know, it took Soren Kierkegaard to come along and say, uh, here's the, the great philosopher who's built this impressive palace of thought, uh, but the question is, where is he living? And what he's living in, says Kierkegaard, is a little dog kennel alongside the palace. Uh, 
in other words, uh, Kierkegaard says, uh, what about you as an existing individual while you uh, create these vast categories of uh, uh, the uh, world spirit, the Weltgeist that moves through all the phases of history, extrapolating itself into historical reality? And, and uh, Kierkegaard says if there's one thing that logic can do, and that is uh, uh, logic uh, can enter into time. And, and you, as soon as you make it temporal, it isn't logic anymore. It, uh, uh, as soon as you turn logic into history, as Hegel thought he did, uh, you've denied both logic and history. Uh, uh, well, uh, the philosophers have a lot of fun uh, playing games with one another, but you, you really never come out with any answers that can hold uh, together. Uh, but see, uh, what I'm trying to get you to think about a little bit is that it isn't just a nice little Bible verse that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, it's, a, it's a fundamental axiom upon which all thought has to rest. Because if there's no living God, there isn't any ultimate wisdom. We can't justify it, really. And therefore, uh, to know God is to be given the ground for all understanding. And uh, you see, that, that's been Dr. Ventil's uh, great contribution uh, to emphasize the fact uh, that uh, uh, human thought, apart from uh, the, 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 the Christian religion, apart from Christian theism, uh, human thought uh, is always living on borrowed capital. It's always speaking as though uh, uh, statements could be validated uh, truth could be arrived at, uh, knowledge could be secure, and yet it can never justify its own assumptions. And uh, only the eternal God as the creator, only uh, God uh, in whom uh, reality and reason are forever united and infinitely united, only such a God uh, is one uh, who can give to us uh, the, the ground for rational understanding as we think his thoughts after him. And you see, uh, we are always starting to think that reason has to be abstract. And we're always being led to think that even God has to subscribe uh, to uh, rational principles as out there in the blue somewhere. And you see, what we forget is that the ultimate reality is personal. And that when Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, he speaks uh, far more truly than we begin to imagine. You see, truth ultimately is personal. Uh, it's not what is there at last. It's not that at last there's the category of being with a capital B and God happens to participate in it. Uh, that, that it isn't that way. It's that God's out there and uh, the way we know being uh, is in knowing God. Uh, the, the way in which we know reality is in knowing God. And therefore there's a sense in which if you don't know God, you don't know anything. <laughs> Uh, a right, that is. Now, by God's mercy, uh, we're, we're able to, to lead this life with his judgment suspended, but nevertheless, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Uh, uh, knowledge is not just data retrieval. 
Uh, knowledge is personal understanding. And uh, you can't uh, knock the person out and have wisdom. Uh, wisdom is knowledge with a knower left in, not deleted. And uh, we are living creatures of the living God, and real knowledge, real understanding comes and begins uh, in the fear of the Lord. Okay, that's uh, the subjective appropriation of wisdom, the integration of theory and practice, and the focus of understanding, which is knowing the Lord. And then, if you have no idea where I am, uh, if you look at the bottom of the page and it says seven, you're on the right page. And uh, if you look halfway up that page and see three, it says the redemptive context of wisdom. Uh, that's where I think I am. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, wisdom as the full blessing of God. You see, uh, Deuteronomy 4.26, uh, uh, God says, uh, uh, what nation has ever had laws like yours? <laughs> In other words, uh, what nation has ever had the benefit of the blessing of such revelation as I've given to you uh, for the ordering of your life? And then I would ask you to just uh, note that passage, 1 Kings 4.34, the wisdom of Israel's king. Well, this is very, very important in the history of biblical theology. You see, when God brought Israel into the land and gave them the blessing that he had promised, he also gave them a king. And uh, uh, he gave them David as his king, to be sure, uh, but then he gave Solomon uh, as the king of Israel. And remember, Solomon uh, was uh, told by the Lord that he could ask anything and God would give it to him. And, God, and Solomon asked for wisdom. And the Lord was very pleased with Solomon's request for wisdom. And he gave him wisdom and other blessings beside. But notice the result of God's gift to Solomon. Verse 29 of 1 Kings 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east, and all the wisdom of Egypt, uh, even uh, the wisdom literature that Pritchard has collected for you in uh, texts from the ancient Near East. Uh, a little bit of that is still kicking around, but uh, uh, we're told that Solomon was wiser than all of that, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahal. Now, unfortunately, all of these knowledgeable worthies have been lost uh, to uh, history. They have uh, sunk without trace. We don't know anything about any of them. Uh, but they were very famous in their time. But Solomon was wiser than the whole bunch. And his fame was in all the nations round about. He spake 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He wrote a whole hymn, though, all by himself. Uh, he spake of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon. Uh, we've got one planted by alumni right outside the building here. Not doing too well this winter. And the hyssop that springs out of the wall. See, from the greatest tree to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and creeping things and fishes. And there came of all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. 
Now, don't uh, miss the importance of the climactic uh, emphasis in that passage. You see, God has brought his people together. He's given them a king, and he's given to the king the great riches of wisdom, the blessing of wisdom that's given to the king. And that's why the queen of Sheba comes and says, Blessed are all those that stand before you and hear your wisdom. She said, I, I heard a lot about it, but I had no idea it was as great as this. <laughs> now, you see the point of all of that, don't you? God had promised that in Israel would all the nations of the earth be blessed. And now you see the kings of the earth coming to Israel to learn of the wisdom of Israel's king. Uh, here is the fountain of wisdom. And what is Solomon saying? Well, he's saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He's saying if you want to know how to order wisdom, you need to begin with the God of Israel. So there's a great testimony going out to the nations of the earth because they have come in to learn of the wisdom of Solomon. So uh, wisdom appears as the full blessing of God, the wisdom of Israel's king, and uh, you see the universalized context of wisdom revelation. That is to say, uh, Solomon can take uh, of the Proverbs uh, of other than Israel's sources, and he can show where there are aspects of understanding in those Proverbs that can be related to the revelation that God gives to Israel. So he utters proverbs that have significance uh, for all men everywhere. There's a universal outreach to the way in which uh, the wisdom uh, dialogue is structured. And then wisdom points to the promises. In the unresolved problems that wisdom exposes, why do the righteous suffer, the vanity of death, the power of evil, and in the apocalyptic promise that wisdom brings, that there's going to be a great victory, there's going to be the world empire of uh, the Lord God, so that the little Israelite um, pocket in the, among the nations of the world is not the final evidence of the power and glory of God, but it will be only when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. <clears throat> Now we come to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, because Christ is uh, the Lord of wisdom. And he, he summons us uh, to come to him in Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30. You know, in that passage, uh, Jesus says, uh, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And sometimes we just stop there, but remember the passage goes on, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Now when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, he's really using the language of wisdom. Uh, I've given you a reference there for the book of Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, uh, the wisdom of the son of Sirach. And uh, toward the end of that book, the very last passage of that book, uh, tells us uh, how uh, the son of Sirach uh, has uh, sought for wisdom and has found for himself much rest. And in that passage, he tells us to take upon us the yoke of wisdom 
and he says it's close by and it's inexpensive and we can get it uh, for little money and uh, find much rest. Well, you find in that passage in the Wisdom of the Son of Sirach the same phraseology that Jesus uses. He doesn't directly quote it, but he certainly uses uh, the same uh, vocabulary. And uh, there's a close similarity in the two passages. But there's also a remarkable difference. Because in uh, the wisdom of the son of Sirach, it's the disciple of wisdom, the teacher of wisdom, who's telling us to take wisdom's yoke. Who says, learn of me while I teach you about the yoke of wisdom. But with Jesus, there's an interesting shift. He isn't telling us that he can teach us about wisdom, but he's telling us that we can can take his yoke and learn of him. Jesus presents himself as the wisdom of God. He steps into the role of wisdom, and he says, if you learn of him, you will receive rest. In other words, Jesus makes the claim for himself that the son of Sirach makes for wisdom at the end of the book of Ecclesiasticus. Now, it's interesting that earlier in Matthew 11, uh, Jesus refers to wisdom uh, in the feminine. He says, uh, wisdom is justified uh, of all her wor- in all her works. Uh, So he refers to wisdom, as the um, book of Proverbs does, as uh, dame wisdom or lady wisdom. Uh, But in this passage, at the end of Matthew 11, he applies uh, wisdom uh, to himself. He he claims to be the Lord of wisdom. The yoke of Jesus Christ is the yoke of wisdom. His call is the call of wisdom. Now, how is that call justified, take my yoke upon you? Well, it's justified in terms of the claim that Jesus made uh, just before in that same passage. For you remember that it's right there in Matthew 11 that Jesus uh, makes this extraordinary claim. He says, verse 27, All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, And no one knoweth the Son, save the Father, neither doth any know the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. And then he says, come unto me. You see, he claims to be the very wisdom of God because he is the Son of God. And therefore, only he knows the Father. And only the Father knows knows him. Only he can reveal the Father, and only the Father can reveal him. There's that mutual exclusivity between the Father and the Son. Now, you know, we can recognize a certain natural basis for that. We can say that uh, there's a sense in which uh, no one knows a man the way his own son knows him. (laughs) And, uh, No one uh, knows a man as his own father would know him. uh, uh, There's a remarkable uh, and uh, distinctive uh, knowledge uh, between a father and a son. Uh, I remember a big uh, argument one time in a general assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and some speaker was claiming uh, to present Dr. Stonehouse's opinion on a certain uh, point. You see Dr. Stonehouse's portrait there, you know, in the dining room. 
and uh, uh, one uh, young man got up and said, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, that does not represent Dr. Stonehouse's views. And I happen to know what his views were on that. Everybody listened because the speaker was Chip Stonehouse, his own son, you see. And uh, uh, he was entitled to have a certain knowledge of what his father's views were. Uh, well, uh, Jesus says, I know my father. <laughs> and since uh, uh, the father is God and Jesus is God, therefore only he knows the father. You see, nobody else could claim a, a soul knowledge of God. Uh, a man might claim to be number one in knowing God, but no man could claim to be the only one who knows God. But that's what Jesus claims. And if that's an enormous claim, how about the opposite, that nobody else knows him but God himself? You see, he puts himself on a full equality of God with reference both to knowledge and to revelation. So then, how is it that he can so reveal the Father? And of course, it's because of his authority as the Son. Solomon is the great teacher of wisdom. He's the great wise man of the Old Testament. But as Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here. The very Son of God has come. Now, I would remind you that all of Jesus' teaching is in the format of wisdom literature. If you think of the uh, Beatitudes... Uh, oh, excuse me, before, before I say that, uh, one little point I shouldn't skip. At the very bottom of page 7, that third point, his word as full wisdom. And then I referred to Peter's confession as the soul of the community. Uh, I thought I should explain that. Uh, what I mean by that is the fact that uh, in, the, in the Dead Sea community, there was a great emphasis put on the fact that the community's council. You know the difference between council spelled C-I-L and council spelled S-E-L. Um, I judge that uh, a full 3% of you know that difference. Uh, I'm judging by papers I've read and the spelling in them. Uh, uh, and that's going to confuse the computers because even the best computer speller is not going to know which way to spell it. Uh, but uh, uh, there is a difference. And uh, Council, C-I-L, uh, that's a, a group of men that get together to uh, decide something, you know, as in the city council. And uh, Council, uh, S-E-L, uh, that's the advice that's given in the council, okay? Uh, 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 this is what you say, and these are the folks that say it, the, the council and the council. Uh, pretty tough, but there it is. Uh, all right, well, it's not just in, in English that you've got problems like that. You've got them in Hebrew, too, where you have soth and yisoth, and uh, uh, these can uh, be referred to a council or to a council. And in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they say that the council of the community is founded on the council of God. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you see that in uh, Jesus' words to Peter, don't you? He says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And in uh, the Dead Sea community, the council is established on the rock of the truth of God. 
and the righteous man has the, his foundation as the rock of God's truth. And in a similar way, Jesus says that the, uh, the uh, church, the council, the, the uh, community, uh, will be established on the confession of uh, Simon Peter, Peter as the confessing apostle. Uh, so there's a connection between the, the structure of the community and the truth on which the community is established. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, I mention that because I want to emphasize the fact that Jesus Christ, because he can reveal the Father, gives us the truth of God on which uh, there must rest uh, the, the church of God. And Jesus comes to reveal wisdom and to uh, enable us to know the wisdom of God uh, in himself. There's a very interesting passage, you know, in the third chapter of uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, who was here, uh, who was at the uh, 10th Presbyterian Church downtown Sunday night? Anybody here was there then Sunday night? One. Okay. Uh, I, was, I was talking about uh, the passage in John 3 where uh, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And uh, calling attention to the background of that passage in the book of Proverbs and the 30th chapter. Uh, there we have a rather skeptical statement, which are the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle. And uh, there we read uh, Agur saying, Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man, and I have not learned wisdom, neither have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Now, there he's making a very modest statement, you see. I don't have wisdom. I don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. But then he sort of says, but who does? And he says, who has ascended up to heaven and descended? Who, you know, if you're going to have knowledge of the Holy One, you've got to have somebody who will go check it out. So who's going to go up to heaven and get the knowledge and come and bring it down to us? Uh, so he says, who has ascended up to heaven and who has descended? And uh, who can know the power and might of God? Uh, who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in his garment? Who's established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name if you know it? Now Jesus uh, says... Uh, See, Nicodemus says to Jesus, I believe you are a teacher come from God. And Jesus, in effect, says to Nicodemus, uh, you don't know what you're saying. <laughs> See, Nicodemus says, you're a teacher come from God. Well, Jesus has come from God, all right, but in a way that goes far beyond anything that Nicodemus can imagine. And so he tells Nicodemus that unless he's born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus gets all confused about this matter of the new birth. And, uh, of course, anothen in uh, Greek, uh, in John's Gospel, it can mean either born again or born from above, born anew, uh, born, born again or born anew. Uh, but uh, if it means born anew, uh, that ties in also with the idea of being born from above. So uh, Jesus uh, begins to talk about how he's come from above. Uh, and uh, let me just turn to the Gospel of John there. Uh, uh, 
Nicodemus can't understand how a man can be born again. He can't enter into his mother's womb, can he, he says, and be born. And Jesus says that he's born of the Spirit, that you can't control or understand any more than the wind. And then Jesus says in verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that which we know, and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, Nicodemus says, Your teacher come from God. And Jesus is saying, in effect, yes, I did indeed come from God, and I could tell you heavenly things. I could tell you about what's going on up there. But how can I tell you that if you don't even understand when I talk to you about the new birth, something that ought to be uh, pretty understandable to you as a teacher in Israel? And then Jesus says, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven, uh, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, I know the reading is disputed for the last bit, the Son of Man who is in heaven, but uh, there's good ground for believing that to be an authentic reading because of its very difficulty. Uh, Jesus sitting there with Nicodemus saying he's in heaven, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and it's a rather difficult reading, Uh, uh, and that's an argument for its authenticity. Uh, But uh, in any case, uh, here's Jesus, get the picture, He says, you say I've come from heaven. Okay, I have come from heaven, and I'd like to tell you heavenly things if you could understand it. And then Jesus says, nobody has gone up to heaven to get the information and bring it back. (laughs) Nobody's gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven. (laughs) The coming from God that you said a moment ago. And I have indeed come down from heaven. I have indeed come down from God. And I'm going to go go to heaven. I'm going to ascend to heaven again. Then that amazing paradoxical utterance, how will I go up to heaven? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How will he ascend? He will ascend, first of all, by being lifted up a few feet from the ground and put on the cross. Now, you know that's John's view of it because of John 12, where Jesus says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Then John explains, he's not talking, first of all, about the lifting up to glory, when indeed he will draw men to him from glory, but he's speaking, first of all, of his being lifted up to the cross, because as he's crucified on the cross, he draws men to himself. So there's an amazing interweaving there in the words of Jesus that are alluding to the passage in Proverbs 30 uh, that point us to the fact that uh, Jesus, who came down from heaven, will return to heaven and that he does so because of the wonder of the cross. Yes? Well, there may be. There may be the thought that, um, you know, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. You know, in John's Gospel, Jesus is obviously not teaching a universalism. He's come to uh, uh, gather those that the Father has given to him. And the all men in that setting uh, certainly does mean that with the climax of his ministry, it goes beyond Israel. And remember the immediate context in John 12 there? Remember, it's the Greeks who come seeking Jesus. 
And uh, uh, this is startling, you see, because his ministry has been to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now the Greeks come. And then Jesus sees the coming of the Greeks as presaging uh, his own crucifixion. Uh, With the coming of the Greeks, it shows that his ministry is nearing his end. And when it is ended, when he's lifted up in the cross, then he will draw all men to him. That is, not only Jews, but also Greeks. So the all men there is in that context of not the Jews only, but also the Greeks. Okay, so there's the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, fact that Jesus comes and reveals himself as wisdom, and then he gives his instruction as the master of wisdom, as the teacher. Uh, teaching the Beatitudes, uh, the blessings. Uh, you know, uh, you have uh, in 1 Kings 10.8, uh, the uh, Queen of Sheba saying, Blessed are all they that stand before you. And she's using a wisdom kind of formulation. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, and so on. Uh, Jesus comes also pronouncing blessing using those formulas. Uh, Jesus alludes to the scribes of the kingdom in Matthew 13, 51 and 52. Uh, you see, uh, scribalism is not going to be excluded. The scribes were the enemies of Jesus, many of them, but they're going to be new scribes and true scribes, those who will bring out of their treasures things both new and old. Uh, you have the exposition and controversy of wisdom, the parables, the apocalyptic structure of wisdom, uh, times and seasons, uh, all of these things uh, are used by Christ in his teaching. You know, that's something that's often not noticed, that the form of Christ's teaching is uh, against the background of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. You know, he has these little aphorisms, these little statements, these uh, proverbial type structures, uh, uh, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Uh, uh, Jesus is a, a wisdom teacher, And he uses the forms of wisdom in order to teach. Um, He tells stories. uh, uh, His uh, his teaching is uh, remarkably diverse, uh, informed by the informed in that old technical sense, shaped, structured by the uh, the forms of the wisdom literature. Um, It gives you a lot to think about, doesn't it? In uh, in terms of preaching, uh, as to uh, uh, the variety of forms in the in the shaping of uh, our messages uh, uh, we have to explain, uh, but we can also tell stories uh, we can also uh, uh, form uh, statements that will be memorable so that people can carry away uh, uh, some uh, aphoristic formulation from time to time that will help to uh, Uh, help them to remember. Now, of course, uh, we are expounding the scriptures, so there's a sense in which our preaching is always interpretative. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, remember that Jesus calls our attention to the wisdom literature uh, for the communication uh, of the message. And then his example in the meekness of wisdom. Learn of me, the lowly Lord. Uh, Jesus thanks the Father that he's hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and has revealed them unto babes. And remember, that's right there in that same passage in Matthew 11. Uh, God God has uh, hidden these things from the wise, revealed them unto babes. Uh, The world and its wisdom knew not God, and therefore God, through the foolishness of preaching, has saved those that believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
And Jesus also sends us as prophets and wise men and scribes, Matthew 23, 34. Now, um, we have just a few more minutes uh, to go, but just before I look at that last section with you, uh, I want to uh, give you a moment. Do you want to ask a question? Okay, could, could you just uh, stand, not leave, because we only have a few minutes, but just stand up and stretch a little bit, because, it, you know, I think that's about preaching in context or something like that. I'm not sure. Um, okay, now, the blessing of Christ through the richly indwelling word. And I'm just calling your attention here to uh, how important it is to take account of the wisdom of God's revelation in Jesus Christ in your teaching and preaching ministry. You see, we're called to meditate on the word of Christ. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And uh, that word uh, uh, used for meditate uh, there, the uh, uh, Hebrew word hagah, is uh, it's itself an omnomatopoetic word. That is, it suggests what's going on. Uh, our word mumble is like that, isn't it? Mumble, 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 mumble. That sounds like you're mumbling in, uh, in English. And uh, haga, 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 that sounds like you're mumbling in Hebrew. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a little a little different, but uh, if you hear anybody going around the campus going haga haga haga, you know what they're doing. That's all right. Uh, my my grandmother told me never mutter, don't mutter, speak up. Uh, but uh, you know, if you're going to memorize scripture, you're almost bound to mutter, aren't you? I mean, you've got to say it. You can't just think it to memorize it. Uh, so. Uh, you see people memorizing Hebrew verbs around here, don't you? You know, and they, they've got to mutter to do it. And, okay, so you, you, you mutter. You, um, uh, you, you speak the word of God. You meditate uh, on what God says, and you begin with memorizing. And uh, memorize out loud. Don't be afraid to do that. Do some memorizing. Repeat scripture. Uh, get to know it. Um, uh, I had a friend who got a little embarrassed at the thought of... Uh, uh, praying out loud, you know, but he found that was most profitable, or, or repeating scripture out loud. So he liked to meditate out loud, but you look a little foolish walking down the street, uh, you know, muttering to yourself. Uh, and so uh, he would go into a, a phone book a booth and take it off the hook and not put any money. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was socially acceptable. It didn't cost him anything. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Lord was on the other end of the line. It was very good. Uh, but uh, uh, you, you, might, uh, uh, you, you might try that to get yourself... Uh, I don't care if you do that. But I do hope that you'll, you'll start to uh, mumble and mutter and uh, memorize Scripture. And then, of course, it doesn't just mean the actual muttering. It means uh, uh, reflecting on it, turning it over, thinking about it. Uh, uh, you grow in wisdom as you uh, turn over and over in your mind the truth of God's word and do it in application to your situation, trying to think it through. Uh, the, you know, the Puritans always kept devotional diaries. Now, uh, in part, they were checking themselves out to see how they were doing. <laughs> 
but uh, it wasn't just that. They were also praising God. They were glorifying God for, for what he had done. Uh, you know, there are wonderful stories about uh, um, how some of the Puritans had to, uh, uh, first had to uh, melt the ink which had frozen solid in the low temperature in the room. They'd have to melt the ink in order to write their morning devotions. But uh, you, you don't have to do that anymore. Maybe you do. I don't know where you're living. But anyhow, uh, how, about, um, how about trying that for a while? Hmm? I'm sure many of you already do it. Uh, but try writing out your meditations, uh, writing them out. I must confess that I didn't do that uh, most of my life. Oh, I did it occasionally, but I mean, I didn't do it regularly. I didn't write out my meditations. And, and then uh, uh, in January 1980, I taught a course here on prayer in the winter term. And I challenged everybody for the month of January to write a meditation every day. And I told them to, uh, to uh, turn it in. I said I, I, I didn't want... I wasn't going to read them. I just wanted to see that they did them, see, because <laughs> uh, I, I wanted them to be confidential so you can just write before the Lord and not write for somebody else, but uh, uh, to get the discipline of doing it. Uh, so, of course, when I made the assignment, I had to do it myself, so I, uh, I wrote out my meditation every day. Well, that was in January 1980, and uh, I've done it ever since. And it's been a tremendous blessing uh, to me in my life uh, to, to write that out. And uh, uh, I, I, I'm not one of these guys who's real well organized. I'm a very much a messy desk kind of person, and I, I keep fighting uh, to try to get over all my sins of procrastination and piling up unanswered letters and all that. So uh, I'm just trying to tell you that I'm not, don't think of me as the kind who very naturally or normally takes to <laughs> a regular habit like that, but um, it just has been a tremendous blessing to me. And uh, if, if I can do it, uh, I'm sure you can, and uh, uh, you can do it regularly, you know. At first, I was at the point where a couple of times I'd wake up about 3 o'clock in the morning and realize I hadn't done it. And so I'd, I'd get out of bed and do it because you've got to be determined you're going to do it. I figured the Lord would figure that getting out of bed is still counting for the day before, you see. <laughs> and, but but uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't have to do it very often that way. A couple of times that uh, turns out to be very salutary. You're less likely to forget the next time. You and, uh, you know, in, in this past year, I, I haven't checked back uh, um, I don't think I missed any days. I, I, I think not. Um, and, and, and certainly in all those years, you know, there have been very few days by God's grace that have been missed. Well, you know, that obviously means that the Lord in his goodness has uh, not uh, brought me into any real serious illness where I'd be unconscious for 24 hours or something, uh, which happens to a lot of people. They get so they're you know, completely incapacitated and be unable to do that. But, uh, but uh, think about that, won't you? I, I share that with you just because I want to urge you uh, to do it. And I'm so sorry I, I didn't begin it until uh, 1980, see, although I was born in 1917. And that, so that's a, that's a long while not to do it and a very short while to do it. But uh, you're, you're um, you know, 
you can have a really fruitful time in your own ministry. And, you know, let it just be between you and the Lord. But try to go, grow in wisdom as you do it, all right? Uh, try to gain some insight. You know, uh, pray about the plans of your life. Pray about what you think the Lord would have you to do. Uh, uh, pray about other people. And, of course, always read the scripture. And uh, how shall I say it? You know, don't, don't read the scripture uh, feeling that you're going to be sadly disappointed if the Lord doesn't give you some... Uh, overwhelming uh, uh, insight, um, you know, just be thoughtful about it. Think about what, what, what's uh, the Lord really uh, saying in this passage. And, uh, do it in the Old Testament, do it in the New Testament. Uh, uh, at first I did it in a very random way. I was just opening the Bible almost anywhere and, and then I began to do it in a much more systematic way to go through whole books, you know, uh, uh, a little bit at a time. But there are no rules on that. You, obviously, you can, uh, you can read a whole chapter if you want to, or you read just a verse or two. And, but reflect on it and write about it. What does the verse say? And, and write your questions, things you don't understand in the verse. Why is this going on? I don't, I don't see this. And, uh, Lord, I need to understand better why the, the Bible would say this here. And uh, Do that and, uh, and, and pray as you do it. And it'll be very... Uh, very beneficial to you, I'm sure. Now, I know uh, we're different. Uh, some of you um, are very, very comfortable with a pen or a computer or whatever, and uh, some of you tend to be more uncomfortable, and uh, maybe writing isn't for everybody. Maybe, uh, maybe you do better just walking and talking out loud, and Jonathan Edwards used to walk out in the field singing his meditations. Uh, uh, which would be a disastrous course for me, as I've indicated. But, uh, uh, but you know, how, how, what, what fits for you? What, but take the time and get into it and enjoy the Word of God. And uh, um, uh, it's such a wonderful thing, you know, because you're again and again rebuked by the fact that as you get back to the Scripture and get into it again, you realize how much you've, uh, uh, the, the wonderful grace of God has drifted out of your consciousness and you need to get back in again and see what these realities of the Word are. And, uh, the, the Lord leads you, guides you, teaches you as you uh, dwell in His Word. And, and the wisdom that, that, that the Lord gives you uh, as you keep digging into the Scriptures is, is just amazing. And uh, I honestly don't think there's been a single time I've read the scriptures like that, taking the time to write it out. I just think I can't remember a time when I didn't see something in the Bible that I hadn't seen before. <laughs> because the Bible's so rich. And you just give time to think about it, reflect on it. Why? Sometimes they're little things, sometimes they're big things. But uh, you're confronted with them, you see them. It's, uh, it's tremendous. Um,